0: Well, please turn your Bibles to Luke chapter eight, verses 22 through 25. Luke chapter eight, verses 22 through 25. So far in Luke, in these first seven chapters or so, we have, uh, we've been considering, one thing that we've seen is the authority of Jesus. We've seen that Jesus has authority over unclean spirits and demons, We've seen that he has authority over disease and even death itself. We've seen that Jesus has authority over the Sabbath as he proclaims the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. But this evening in our passage before us, we see that Christ has authority even over the forces of nature. And the crowds during this period in Jesus' ministry, they're they're trying to figure out the identity of Jesus. You may recall a few passages ago when Jesus raised the young man from the dead, the only son of a widow. After this miracle happened, the, the crowds who were present, they exclaimed, A great prophet has risen among us. God surely has visited his people. Shortly after that, John, through his disciples, sent a message to Jesus saying, Are you the one who is to come, or are we to look for another? So no doubt, there there was a range of opinions about who this Jesus was. This Jewish teacher who came from that no-name village of Nazareth. But one thing was self-evident. This man had authority. Authority that the people had never seen in their own religious lead- leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, whom they were familiar with. So please turn your attention to Luke chapter 8, verses 22 through 25. Luke chapter 8, verses 22 through 25. One day, Jesus got into a boat with his disciples. And there was a calm. He said to them, where is your faith? And they were afraid and they marveled saying to one another, who then is this? That he commands even winds and water and they obey him? The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. May he write this word upon our hearts this evening. But we live in a world that is marked by both order and chaos. Or to put it another way, we live in a world that on the one hand is marked by the curse of our first parents' fall and sin in paradise, while at the same time we live in a world that is marked by God's preserving common grace over all things, chaos and order. And by chaos, what I mean more specifically are those seasons of life when tragedy, pain, and and suffering are unleashed upon us. Those moments when our expectations for how the world should work are thrown asunder and the inexplicable occurs. God has created this, this universe with a certain moral order a moral order that's that's true according to the nature of things, in a way that the law of gravity is is true according to the nature of things. For instance, someone leads a a responsible, virtuous life, they can ordinarily expect that that life will go fairly well. But contrastly, if someone lives an irresponsible life, full of, of vice, they're setting themselves up for ordinarily a pretty difficult life. Again, if, if someone's a drunk who lives in the bar and is lazy, they're making their future pretty difficult. But we know that this universe, this world, is, is still marked by the curse, by sin, and so our expectations don't always follow suit. Follow this moral order. Sometimes it's the virtuous individuals who are the recipients of gross injustices and gross trials and tribulations, while it's the responsible, or it's the, the people full of vice who, who receive the prosperity. In a lot of ways, this is what the books such as Ecclesiastes, Job, some Psalms are wrestling with. How can this be? In those moments when our expectations for how the world should work are not met, we are shaken. We become disillusioned to all that is good in this world. That's chaos. Chaos. And by order, I mean those times in life when our expectations for how the world should work are met. We seek to be virtuous, we work hard, we enjoy the fruit of our labor. As one author has put it, order is the floor beneath our feet, the plan for the day, what we can lean upon, what we can expect for the future. Now ordinarily, when chaos strikes in our life, the emotions of fear, anxiety, frustration, even anger follow close behind. And when order is the dominant note in our life, the emotions of of peace, of joy, Comfort, follow as well. And so in this passage before us, we encounter many of these themes. We encounter the themes of chaos, order, fear, and even comfort. And so the question I'd like to put on the table this evening is this. How do we experience comfort in the midst of the chaos in this life? How do we experience comfort in the midst of the chaos in this life? I believe that this passage, this short narrative before us, answers that specific question. So in order to answer this question, I'd like us to consider two points in particular. We'll consider when chaos strikes and finding comfort in the midst of the chaos. So first, when chaos strikes. You'll notice that this passage begins with Jesus suggesting to his disciples that they take a boat ride across the Lake of Gennesaret, or the the Sea of Galilee. Now the disciples who were most likely with Jesus during this boat ride were the twelve apostles, as well as the three women that we encountered at the beginning of chapter 8. Joanna, Susanna, and Mary Magdalene. So Jesus suggests that they all take a boat ride across the Sea of Galilee. And not long after leaving the shore, we see that Jesus falls asleep. He he needs some rest, some shut eye. And the typical fishing boat in that day ordinarily had a, a section on the boat that had a pillow, so that those who were not on duty could could rest. And Jesus most likely took a beeline to that pillow as soon as they boarded to find some rest. This important detail that we shouldn't overlook, this reveals to us that Christ was true man. Now, of course, we know that he's very God of very God. He's of the same substance of, of the Father and the Holy Spirit. But it's very easy for us to think that Christ had some some higher form of humanity than the rest of us. But Jesus was truly human. Human, just like you and I, except for sin. And so he grew thirsty, he grew hungry, he even grew tired. He most likely was exhausted at this point. After a a busy season of teaching, of interacting with the crowds, he needed some rest. We see his humanity on display here as, as Jesus, Jesus is asleep as they cross this Sea of Galilee. And as they are sailing, we are told that a sudden storm strikes, a windstorm strikes. Now this is quite common for the Sea of Galilee. The reason being is the Sea of Galilee was located about 700 feet below sea level and it was surrounded by hills. And so what would happen is the cool air would come off the hills and meet the warm air on top of the Sea of Galilee and it could bring forth this windstorm in a moment's notice. And that's what's taking place here in our narrative. They're going along and... Out of the blue, this windstorm strikes. And this storm, no doubt, would have been causing big waves to crash across this this fishing vessel, bringing water inside the vessel. And the disciples quickly realize that this is a dire situation. They're in real danger. They're in the middle of the sea, During a raging storm on a fishing boat. Now, in the Old Testament, the paradigmatic picture, representation of chaos, judgment, and death was the sea. Think of those those instances in the Old Testament of the sea the flood. The flood which was judgment upon the entire earth, foreshadowing the final judgment at Christ's second coming. Think of the Red Sea, which was judgment upon the Egyptians. This is why baptism is a double-edged sword. It's not just a sign of blessing, but for those who receive it and walk away from the covenant, it's a sign of curse, of judgment. The sea. It represented, pointed to, chaos, judgment, and death. And this was true not only for the nation of Israel, but also for the pagan nations around Israel. Many of the myths that have come down to us today that were written in some of these other nations, they speak about the sea in similar ways, as, as paradigmatic of chaos, judgment, and, and death. It's no surprise that these, these ancient people thought of the sea in such ways. Being stranded and at the mercy of the sea is one of the worst situations to be in. It's unpredictable. It's powerful, much more powerful than any one of us. At times, it's deadly. Thus, in this narrative, this scene where the disciples and Jesus are are in a storm at sea, this is the quintessential picture of chaos. Again, notice, while this is going on, Jesus is off to the side sleeping. Or imagine the disciples can't believe their eyes. They're terrified. And they're thinking, the one who suggested that we cross this sea in the first place is sleeping, while our lives are slowly slipping away. Disciples who... Again, we don't know exactly what their view of Jesus was at this time. Some of them may have knew he was the son of man, the the son of God. No doubt they knew that this was a very powerful individual. Great prophet with much authority. Regardless of their exact view. I'm sure they couldn't believe how oblivious Jesus was to their circumstances. I'm sure they were trying trying to scoop out the water, do whatever they can to survive, and Jesus is sleeping. Can't we relate to the disciples? Oftentimes, when chaos is unleashed in our life, the chaos of trials, tribulations, pain, suffering, inexplicable tragedies, does it not feel as if God went down for a nap? He's completely absent from us, oblivious to what we're going through, the dire circumstances that we are walking through? I'm sure that as the water was seeping into this boat, there was sort of a a parallel to the fear that was filling the disciples' heart. And that's not a surprise to us, is it? We know that when chaos comes for us, it's not hard to be fearful. It's not hard to be anxious. It's not hard to be frustrated and angry. So again, this leads us to consider more pointedly that question. How do we find comfort when chaos comes? How do we find comfort in the midst of such chaos? This leads us to my second point. Finding comfort. Finding comfort in the midst of the chaos of our lives if you look with me in verse 24 we see the the disciples terrified terrified by this storm they they quickly go to Jesus master master we are perishing they wake Jesus up and Jesus with but a word rebukes the wind and the waves and the water becomes glass now this shouldn't surprise us As we've been going through chapter by chapter Luke's gospel, we've seen the powerful word of Christ. How Christ with but a word can heal the centurion servant who is ill. With but a word he can raise a young man from the dead. With but a word he can cast out unclean spirits and demons. In the same way, with but a word, Christ can control the forces of nature. And this word that Luke uses for rebuke This word in the original language, the the Greek language, this word is used, this exact word is used in chapter 4. Back in chapter 4, Jesus encountered Simon's mother-in-law who had a fever. And Jesus was said to have rebuked the fever. And she was well. And in that same chapter, we also see this word being used as Jesus rebuked demons, and unclean spirits. But when you look at this word, and we, when we see how this word is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, we see that the psalmist uses this. In Psalm 105, verse 9, to say that God rebuked the Red Sea, and it stood, and the people passed through. What Luke wants us to know is that this is the powerful word of God on display. This is the God-man god man who is speaking, calming the winds and, and the waves and bringing about calm and order. So we move on to verse 25. We read something very striking. Jesus, he rebukes the wind and the waves and he, and he, he asks the disciples. He says, where, where is your faith? And then notice the disciples. We read that, and they were afraid. Now just moments before, the disciples would have been trembling, utterly terrified at this raging storm that wanted to consume them. And so Jesus rebukes this storm. Utter calm and order ensues. The water, I'm sure, would have been still like glass. And they're still fearful. Maybe even more fearful. There's this dialectic that we see throughout Scripture. It's a dialectic of, on the one hand, people desiring the presence of God, and then when the presence of God comes, being utterly terrified by that presence. So as one author says, God is both our greatest problem and solution. His presence is the worst news, and the best news, the most fearful threat or the most cheerful comfort. From Genesis to Revelation, there is this struggle, this awkwardness, raging from indescribable joy to utter terror when we talk about God's presence or face. And we see this dialectic here in our passage. Moments before the disciples, They were longing for God to show up, for Jesus just to awake from his slumber and do something about this raging storm. And when he does, they realize that they have a new problem on their hand. They're introduced to a new and even more profound fear as they realize that this man who is in the boat is more powerful than the forces of nature. So this tells us that the presence of God is first and foremost not a comforting thing. For a sinful people, the presence of God, the unmediated presence of God, is utterly terrifying. The disciples saw something of that presence. So how does this presence, how does this presence become a comfort for us? Because the unmediated presence of God does not lead to order for us, it just leads to utter chaos, judgment. More fear. So how does the presence of the divine, the presence of God, become a comfort? A comfort for a sinful people. Well, from the standpoint of this narrative, I believe the answer to that question comes by what Jesus will do for his people. Namely, in his death and resurrection, at the cross, as he rises from the the grave. I believe that these events are foreshadowed in this short narrative that's before us. No doubt the disciples likely would not have recognized this foreshadowing, but as we look back upon this narrative, this episode, I think we can confidently say that Jesus is preparing his people, teaching us about the cross, about the resurrection. As I mentioned, in the context of the Old Testament, the water is portrayed as chaos, judgment, death. Again, remember this narrative. This narrative begins with, with Jesus, by his own initiative, entering into these chaotic waters of the Sea of Galilee. Waters that can churn up a storm in a moment's notice. And the storm comes, and Jesus is in the middle of this raging storm. And at that place, he rebukes the storm. Brings utter calm and order and sails safely across the other side. So, what is the cross? The cross is Jesus taking the plunge into the chaotic waters of God's wrath and judgment. It's Him taking the judgment of the flood. It's him becoming our Red Sea in our place, swallowing the wrath of God for us. I think there's a certain analogy between the disciples' response in the midst of the storm and the disciples' response after the crucifixion. Notice that in the midst of the storm, they were terrified, perplexed. How can Jesus be doing this? We're about to die and he's sleeping. Remember, remember the disciples' response after the crucifixion? Somber, depressed, sad. What's going to happen now? We thought he was the one, the one who was going to restore the kingdom of David and Solomon and, and deliver us from the tyranny of the Romans, but now he's dead. What is God up to? Well, what's the resurrection? The resurrection is Christ rebuking the storm of death as he triumphed over it. Again, I think there's an analogy. The analogy between how the disciples respond to Jesus rebuking the storm and the disciples response to the resurrected Lord. Notice that after Luke says that they were afraid, he said they marveled with wonder. The power of Christ. In Luke 24, verse 41, which is the chapter about Jesus' appearance to his disciples after he rose from the dead. We read that after Jesus revealed his identity to them, they marveled, using the same word that's used here to describe the marveling of the disciples. So, of course, Jesus... In his resurrection, he rebuked the storm of death. But we know that as we look around in our own lives, we know that death still exists. We know that suffering still exists. We know that chaos is still a norm in this age. Listen to Revelation 21, verse 1, which is John speaking about the age to come, the new creation. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. We are awaiting a day when the sea will be utterly eradicated. That is to say all chaos, judgment, and death will be gone as Christ issues in complete order. That's what we're looking forward to. So the presence of God goes from being a terror to a comfort to a delight Through this work of Christ, his death, his resurrection. And because of that work, we can know that God is for us, not against us. Because Christ plunged into the the chaotic waters of God's judgment and wrath, we can know that we will never have to take that plunge ourselves. Because Christ was forsaken by his Father, we will never be forsaken by the Father because Christ rebuked the storm of death and his resurrection, we can know with a certain hope and expectation that we have a glorious future ahead of us when all chaos that surrounds us in this age will be, uh, give way to complete order. So because of the work of Christ, we can be utterly confident that God is for us, not against us. Even though our lives may uh, seem utterly chaotic right now, we can know that the God of all order is for us. That he promises to work all things for our good. That he will never permit anything without already determining how he will work that for your good. As the one who controls the forces of nature. Well, this passage concludes with those in the boat asking this question. Who then is this, that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him? We don't know exactly what these disciples were thinking, what they believed about Jesus at this point and his identity, but it does seem to indicate that there were at least some in this boat who were still on the fence about Jesus so if you are here today and you are on the fence about Jesus, about his authority, about who he is, turn to him by faith. Rest in him, receive him as the one who satisfied God's wrath, who took the storm of God's judgment, who rebuked chaos itself for you. This Jesus will either be your righteous and holy judge or your compassionate, all powerful mediator. Let us pray.